welcome back to Meanwhile in an Abandoned Warehouse. I'm Sophie Hope and I'm sat here in our warehouse with Owen Kelly. Last episode we were talking about the convoluted and tangled histories of cultural democracy and we got up to the year 1986 with the conference in Sheffield. Um, My first question really, Owen, to you is what was the relationship then between community arts and colleges and higher education at that time in the 80s in the UK? About this very time, not by design, or certainly not by community artist design, educational institutes were becoming interested in community arts and local authorities were becoming interested in community arts and a number of people in those areas were using the term community arts to beef up and dignify their previous miscellaneous spending. So in various parts of the country, everything from Punch and Judy shows to children's theatre became part of community arts. And so the term started to, even within its own own kind of fairly amorphous terms, the phrase community art began to mean less and less. As the Arts Council devolved community arts spending and community arts spending in different areas became spending on different things and as I say earlier in some local authorities it became a way of rebranding miscellaneous expenditure things like children's theatre playgroups even face paint face painting face painting yes (laughs) Um, sorry Owen going back zooming back again to the Sheffield conference what what Oh, you might have said this already, but what year was it and what, what lo- where, what was the venue and how many people came? The, the year was 1986. The venue was Sheffield Hallam University, if I remember correctly. But I do remember correctly the year was 1986. And we made a fatal mistake in that we decided that in order to move from being having a self-image, as we felt it, of being poor and, and asking for money, etc. We, we persuaded Comedia, then a, a radical publishing house, to subsidise the production of a manifesto for the conference. And we intended the manifesto to be a discussion document. Can you say who we was? We were John Locke, a local councillor in Tower Hamlets, Karen Merkel, who I've mentioned previously, a member of Cultural Partnerships, and me. We were the three nominated compilers, editors. For some reason, we tried to avoid the word writers. But we put together all the ideas that were placed before us at various regional meetings of the Shelton Trust stroke, another standard. We compiled these into a manifesto. We held public meetings and we put it all together. And Andrew Howard from Islington Bus Company and Hanya Janjurek from Medium Wave designed it. And it was a very visually designed manifesto. And the result of that, unfortunately, is many people seemed, felt, unable to view it as anything other than the completed document. They felt as though we'd turned up and handed out the final version of, of something that they were then just, just supposed to sign up to. And this had, this had been the exact opposite of our intention. In my view, I realised the gap between the production standards of the manifesto, because we got Comedia to pay for it, and also, as we made clear, Comedia had said they would also publish 
the final document. They felt, like us, that there was going to be a final document, which would then be a full book that would evoke public discussion. But this didn't happen because as I, the standard of production between the manifesto we turned up to Sheffield with and the kind of roneoed leaflets that people were used to was such that people felt we'd already done it. Oh, you've done it then, have you? You've founded a movement for cultural democracy. And what was, what was, the, what was the response to the content? Well, ironically, some people felt unable to address the content because of the way it was presented. I don't want to over-exaggerate that and suggest that there wasn't discussion. There was furious discussion for a couple of days in Sheffield. But unfortunately, I don't think very many people changed their minds. And I think that the standard of production of the manifesto enabled some people to avoid changing their minds by saying that it's already been done. You've pulled the rug from under our feet. I offer no excuses. Perhaps we should have thought of that. Perhaps we should have seen that coming. Perhaps it was the wrong thing to do. But it seemed like a good idea at the time. And of course, prior to 86, prior to the Sheffield conference, we've got the kind of, it, what I think it looks like date-wise, a parallel production of a, peri a publication in the US that um, Don and Arlene edited uh, called Cultural Democracy, which ran from 81, I think, through to 83. And then you've got the another standard journal, which is also be, I think that started in 81 as well? Yes, yeah, I think so, yes. Did it? And I don't know when it, I don't know when it ran till. Um, but, but these seem to be, um, I've, I haven't looked at the Cultural Democracy um, Journal from the, from the States, but I've, I've poured through the Another Standard journals, um, and they're so fascinating and such a useful resource, I think, still now, although they're quite hard to um, get hold of. I think um, Francois Matarasso has recently put scanned versions on his website, which, is, which we'll put a link to on our website, which is really helpful. Um, but these... Uh, these were sort of pre-86 and even I guess pre-84 when you did your you published Community Art in the State um, were, were where some of the discussions and they're quite honest like well at least another the another standard journal was it seems like it's quite honest debate going on within the within these pages about what's happening with the community arts movement and um, what some of the kind of issues are there was some, yeah there's some critical writing in there about uh, where there's a um, heated yeah it seems quite heated discussions already in the early 80s did you what was mm -hmm. your relationship did you did you know about the cultural democracy so obviously this is pre-internet these were only you know made and distributed by a um, postal service <laughs> and I don't know what the readership was of them could you access the cultural democracy journal from the states could they access another standard was there a conversation between the two or there was, a, there was a small amount of conversation between the two. I had seen one or two cultural democracy journals, again possibly because they'd been brought back physically from the United States by either Karen or Heather. I'm sure, yes, I'm sure you're right, nowadays in the world of the internet we'd be busy producing joint issues or having a joint website or whatever, but yes, then these were difficult to get hold of and we were we were lucky, I think, lucky to uh, accidentally have made Don and Arlene's acquaintance. 
because amongst other things it demonstrated to us that there were possibilities that differed from simply going to the Arts Council every year and trying to be slightly rebellious with our applications. Because the funding structure, as hopefully we'll hear in the next couple of weeks from Arlene, the funding structure in America is and always has been very different. So there simply wasn't the assumption that state funding would exist in the way that the Arts Council certainly did in the 70s, 80s and early 90s. Nor was there the, the assumption that my group, whatever it was, community arts, sculpture, whatever, my group should be funded. And nor was there the, the assumption, because there wasn't sufficient funding around, that being funded by the Arts Council was some kind of stamp of approval. So Arlene and Don were working with community groups that didn't have this kind of structure to work within. Yes, they did have and could have apply for big grants but there were multiple sources of them and there was no single state stamp of approval. I must be a real artist because the Arts Council have given me a grant. And so I think that that perspective, seeing, seeing what Don and Arlene were doing and realising they were working and to some extent flourishing under an entirely different system, a system that in some ways seemed harsher and crueler that enabled us to step back and say, let's just stop worrying about our local issues and start thinking about how we can join in with this activity. And with the um, really sorry practical question as well, uh, the Shelton Trust that then became another standard. How? Where was the money from? The money. The money arrived mainly mainly from grants from the Goldbankian and to some extent from the Arts Council. And that was the. That was how the. Sheffield. My memory is hazy up on the on the financial details of the Shelton Trust. I confess, but yes, it was funded. By <laughs> we small, can find out. Small, we can find out. Yes, we can prove me wrong. <laughs> who who else was behind that? The Shelton Trust. Who were the trustees? Is it? The Shelton Trust was started started by okay. Maggie Pinhorn from Covent Garden Community Arts and Martin. Martin from Freeform, whose name escapes me embarrassingly now. I shall edit it in later. Uh, but basically, a number of community arts groups and uh, had started it in the early 80s, and I joined it mm -hmm. later. I wonder who has the archives of the Shelton Trust? My, my guess would be either Phil Cope, from Valley and Vale Community Arts in Wales, or possibly somebody from Cultural Partnerships. Okay. Well, this can be a little call out if anyone out there is <laughs> knows where we can get the have a look at the archives of the Shelton Trust. If indeed get they in still touch. exist. If indeed well, they still yeah. exist. Yes. Yeah. Hopefully they're not in a skip or landfill. Looking at the uh, Culture and Democracy Manifesto. Some of the things we said there, without having any direct link back to Herbert Reed or whatever, chimed both with things that were being said by Williams and Reed in the 50s, things that were being said by Adams and Goldbard in America, and things that have come to the fore since. I'm just looking at a page 39 of the manifesto, which has a little bar next to it saying, Socialism begins at home. In a genuine democracy, people make their culture rather than have it made for them, locally, nationally and internationally. 
This is what we mean by cultural democracy. It's a continuous political system which depends upon exchange and collaboration. It depends upon listening as well as telling. It is necessarily accessible to contributions from many sources and it makes possible democratic movement through the building of social alliances. It's a process that begins from the proposition that democracy is impossible unless all the administrative systems within a society are themselves democratic, understandable and available for use by the majority of the population. The ideas that constitute cultural democracy both enable and depend upon direct participation and take as their aim the building and sustenance of a society in which people are free to come together to produce, distribute and receive the cultures they choose. And it goes on, but that I think is one of the central parts. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, then no, that sound, that's put it really succinctly and, I, and also just to say that that 86 manifesto is of cultural democracy is available online and we'll put a link on the on our website um so you can read it in full audience members um just to kind of again sorry we're going back and forward around the 80s a bit but the 84 uh your publication um community art and the state storming the citadels can you say a bit about how that came about and did you did you do that off your own back? Were you commissioned? How how were how were Comedia involved in that? What was the response at the time? Do you remember how was it? Did it have a large distribution? Were there many reviews of it? Yeah, can you remember the kind of yeah what led to it and then the sort of aftermath? Sue Braden had just published her book Artists Cast and People, <laughs> which had uh, which was centred around video practice primarily, although not entirely, and. Comedia approached me and asked me if I would like to write a book about the community arts movement. And my assumption at the time, my explicit assumption in fact, was that Sue Braden had written her book, I would write my book, other people would write their books, and a number of different points of view would become represented. As with the, the Culture and Democracy Manifesto in Sheffield, I, I got a, a, a nasty surprise in the sense that once my book was published, that turned out to be it. Nobody, no other practitioners at the time that I am aware of wrote or attempted to write another book. So my book became, and has become, for students of the community arts movement, the history of, or the contemporary story of community arts in the UK in the 80s. But it was intended quite clearly as a polemic. And it was intended as a polemic from within one wing of the community arts movement to other people in the movement as well as a broader audience. So it, it's not an attempt at all, and it wasn't an attempt at all, to be fur or even-handed or to describe all the methods and techniques and places in which these were practiced and called and labelled community arts. It was, as I say, it was a polemic. The first third of it is a, is a look at the history, a very biased look at the history of community arts. The second movement, the second part looks at what the movement might do, which has, in fact, a, a chapter called Cultural Democracy. So, obviously, I knew about that phrase by 1984. And the third part is a look towards a longer-term political programme. 
It was reviewed, yes, it was reviewed, and some reviews were sceptical, most reviews were not. It triggered a little mini-debate between me and Roy Shaw. Roy Shaw was the uh, head of the Arts Council at the time, uh, which, was a, which took place in the pages of Arts Express, another contemporary magazine, in which he tried to argue for the democratisation of culture, inexplicitly in those terms. He, he argued for the democratisation of culture and how I obviously had no taste and no sense of discrimination. To which I responded to the effect that he was wrong on both counts. <laughs> and that his notion of democratisation of culture was rather feeble and uh, he had somehow missed the point and was arguing past me rather than arguing against me. And where did that debate take place? That took place in Arts Express. Arts uh, Express? Wrote, Arts Express, and I have that to hand, I think. I certainly have my response, and I, I'm not sure if I still have Roy Shaw's original article. So that was in, that was sort of 84, 85, do you think? We could probably... It was 85, I think, 85, yes. 85, yeah. So we could dig that out and maybe put it on the website as well. Yes, I can stick, my, re my reply certainly I can stick onto a website because it's, it's exists. we both wrote 3,000 word essays, and his essay was arguing that if I'd ever seen the look of pleasure on a miner's face when he came out of a performance of a piece of Wagner, I would not be able to say the things I was saying. And I, my response to that was, I have seen that, and I'm, it doesn't contradict anything I'm saying at all. I'm entirely happy that miners get involved with seeing Shakespeare, and miners perform Shakespeare, and miners form orchestras and perform Handel and Wagner. I've no, that, that, that's nothing about what I'm arguing at all. Mm. That's, that's an irrelevance, and the fact that people can do that, and the fact that people choose to do that, is, is a wonderful thing. Mm -hmm. And what, um, something, and there's another publication that came out in 85, another co-media, um, they seem to be very um, productive in their publications in the 80s, around this sort of thing. Um, do you remember this book, What a Way to Run a Railroad, an Analysis of Radical Failure? What a Way to Run a Railroad? Does that ring a bell? And I think it was mainly around kind of media, more sort of media focused um, than, than community arts, but it was sort of a critique of, of the ways of, of, of unstructured um, ways of operating radical publishing or um, other types of organisations. But I think there might be something interesting in there that maybe we could return to another, in another episode um, that, that critiques those attempts at organising and how they ultimately either a not listen to or fail in different ways because of the lack of organisational structure. But What a Way to Run a Railroad was written by uh, the three people that founded Comedia, Charles Laundrie, yeah. Dave Morley and Russell Southwood. Yeah. They had founded Comedia as radical publishers and Russell, say, had worked was a former magazine journalist, as I think was Dave at that point. Their interest initially was in using pub publishing for radical interventions. So they published a lot of short books, some so short as to be pamphlets, at a regular basis, and they tried to distribute them through independent bookshops. And so in a sense, what a way to run a railroad was a self-analysis and an analysis of other people that had tried to pursue this same track, that had tried to 
build radical publications on the back of a chain of radical bookshops in the belief that the two would form a virtual, virtuous circle and grow together. And this had a series of issues, problems around it, and that's where they decided to step back and look at what they'd been doing and what the people that they'd been working alongside had been doing. In a sense, it's a, it's a culmination of one, one phase of Comedia's development. Mm -hmm. So thank you for clarifying that. Moving into the kind of 90s and the, the reappraisal of some of the um, attempts at organising around cultural democracy, or with Sheffield, you know, what happened to cultural democracy after that? Was there a lull? Was it kind of continued to be debated? How did it, how did it, because I, I didn't come across this term until, um, until the 2000s, and it wasn't something on my radar when I was at school or college or postgraduate education. And I'm wondering why that is, if it was sort of buried under the carpet or it, maybe people were still debating it, they just weren't, you know, in my, on my radar. But certainly by the 90s, you've got, you've got a bit of a, re there was some reappraisal and re attempts at revival of cultural democracy that I found in the mid 90s when looking back at it. And then in 2004, a, um, a really explicit um, recall and, and attempt at bringing back cultural democracy by the Cultural Policy Collective from Glasgow in their pamphlet. Um, but yeah, do you have a sense of the disappearance of cultural democracy from the table and from the debates by the, by the late 80s? No, I have, a, I have a sense of the disappearance of community arts as a national movement, as the Arts Council devolved spending to the regions, and the regions devolved, some, in some cases, to local authorities, and the Arts Council's structure started to change and the regional arts associations started to change their own structures and community arts became a term that was used, as I said much earlier, used locally to mean very different things and often not very much at all and then various institutions, educational institutions, started running courses on community arts and how to be a community artist, etc. I think that change happened and the result of that fracturing of the community arts movement was that various people who had been working towards cultural democracy went off and did other things. So Medium Wave, where I work for example, we had been what we call the community communications group. We'd been working with people making posters and magazines and leaflets etc. And we found towards the end of the 80s that groups were being funded to get their own Apple Macintosh desktop publishing systems. Very primitive by today's standards, but much better than the Ronioing and Xeroxing that people had been used to. So we found that we were switching from letting people use our equipment to training people in using their own equipment they'd just been grant-aided to buy. And that's a good thing. It felt like people, finally, community groups were beginning to get their own communications equipment. And our role, in, in one sense, was finished. So we said to the Greater London Arts Association that if you give us two years' grants next year, we'll never come again. And so they did. And so we wound Medium Wave up in an orderly way and went off and started to do other things. Hanya went to New York and then to Namibia. Dermot moved somewhere north and I lost track of him. Kevin went off to be a Henry and Kevin both went off to be designers. 
and I started teaching people to use the computer software that was becoming more widely available as the price dropped. So I went off to be a computer trainer for a few years. But where did the, um, for you, did you, did, did cultural democracy come up in conversation much <laughs> as well in the in inter, intervening years? Or The problem for me, and I think for many other people, was that it did come up in discussion when we were discussing with people who wanted to discuss it. But for, say, for medium wave, when we, when we, our funding was devolved, when it went to the, to the Greater London Arts Association, when Lambe Lambeth Council had always funded us as well, and they started to want us to do, to work on children's playgrounds. They explicitly said they want, that, that they wanted community arts to fill the gaps in their local programme and that we would be doing photography workshops on adventure playgrounds, which is one of the things we'd done 10 years previously. But when it came round to doing it again, as our raison d'etre, we were essentially going to be play workers. It became clear we were going to be adventure playground workers and that wasn't what we wanted to do. So we decided to not do it. But politely, and we wound everything up, we didn't storm off, we closed the thing in a very orderly manner and we made sure that all the equipment we had was went on to community groups. We went through all the legal process of handing over ownership of our equipment, etc. So we deliberately stopped. And so in that sense, there was no way to talk to Lambeth Council, despite the fact it had a very left-wing reputation. There was no way to talk to them about cultural democracy, because what they were wanting was play leaders. There had become an institutional disconnect between politicians and professionals in Lambeth Council at that point. So we went off and muttered about cultural democracy in dark corners for several years. Um, should we, Owen, because I'm aware there's a, there's, a, there's a sort of another, a next part of the conversation which I really want to ask you about, which is this rekindled um, interest in cultural democracy. Uh, whether we should do that in the next episode. Let's do that in the next episode or two, yes. Yeah, yeah, because I think there's a, there's a kind of, we, we, there's some, obviously there's the, the more recent movement for cultural democracy um, that's come out of the world transformed, but there are other previous attempts at putting it back on the table and um but yes yeah, so maybe we could we could do a, an episode on that on those resurgences yeah i think the resurgences have their own histories yes i think the history yeah. that started in the end of the 60s start of the 70s ended more or less in the at the start of the 90s and that it, the baton mm. was picked up by another younger group of people including the people in, in scotland sometime in the mid 90s and I think that probably has its yeah. own history. It may or may not be informed by what we've done earlier, but I don't think it was, it was not a direct continuation. It was, as you said, it was a re-flourishing, a re-flowering, a replanting. Re but let's stop now. Okay, thank you, Owen. See you, bye, bye.